Welcome to episode 36 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is November 15th. And in our episode, we're going to talk about the role of the media in shaping how people have reacted to epidemics in American history, and how this immediate narrative has in turn shaped how we remember or don't remember some of these diseases and epidemics years or even centuries later. Yes, I think this is a key question in how the public reacts to epidemics or doesn't, both from a public health perspective and how people experience epidemics in the past and today as well. As some of our other work suggests, we also believe these ideas also move into academic research of past and present diseases. Our guest today is Katie Foss, who is a professor of media studies in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at Middle Tennessee State. She's the author of a very timely book that just came out with the University of Massachusetts Press entitled Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory, that explores the role of the media in epidemics in the United States from the early 18th century through the mid 20th century. Katie has already written two other books, one from 2017 entitled Breastfeeding in the Media, Exploring Conflicting Discourses that Threaten Public Health, and it's 2014 Television and Health Responsibility in the Age of Individualism. Katie has been very productive as over the past three years, she's also edited three books, on the prison experience and its representations in the media, on princess culture and specifically children marketing, and perhaps relevant for some of our listeners, a graduate student guidebook that also came out this year. In addition, she's published more than two dozen other articles in public-facing places such as Slate and Smithsonian Magazine. So hi, Katie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. So as our listeners are probably aware, and Lee just hinted at, we're both very interested not just in historical epidemics and pandemics that occur in their particular time period, whether that be antiquity or the Middle Ages, let's say, but also how different generations of people thought about these diseases from perhaps the late 19th century to today. Now, in academia, we often talk about the public versus the academic in terms of writing or research, but these are obviously not different spheres, but closely related and relying on each other and various forms of media are key ways in which these ideas are connected. Yeah, the media really allows these ideas to move between, again, academic research and popular culture. And this is really a topic we've explored in the past as well. Back in episode 24 with Priscilla Wald about the outbreak narrative or in episode 16, when we talked about pandemics in film with Robert Alpert. And both of those looked at more of these public facing experiences of pandemics. Now, we thought today's episode would be a good way to discuss some of these ideas a bit more over a longer time frame, so focusing more specifically on the media and its role in shaping outbreaks and their memory. Yeah, I think that was a really nice summary, Lee. With that framing done, perhaps, Lee, you want to start off this week and let us know what's happening in Israel? Right, so infections and mortality are in low levels still. You know, we still have some active lockdown measures. Schools are not entirely open, for example. Some stores, shops are not entirely open. There were big news this week that Israel's prime minister, so the equivalent of the American president, has recently announced that he signed a contract to buy Pfizer's vaccine for 4 million people, which is about 40%, 50% of the population of the country here. Yeah, so he's bought tentative vaccines that may or may not work, but we can discuss that shortly. Lee. Yeah, they, they may or may not work, and nobody really knows when these vaccines he bought are supposed to actually show up here. I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of other countries would want to have those as well. But he's really been using this politically. And, and I think the broader context for this is that everyone really thinks that we're moving, heading towards another election. So the fourth election in two years now. Congratulations. Have fun. I'll, I'll keep listeners updated. And what about you, Merle, now that your election craziness has died down? You have four years until the next election. So what's new with you? Well, there's a midterm in two years, but we can discuss that, you know, in a few years. Like. But very clearly, COVID is completely out of control in the United States. If you've been watching our numbers, I think we're, you know, 175,000 or something like that people a day. And I saw a figure was like a million people in the last seven days. So one in 300 people has COVID basically in the United States. And this administration clearly doesn't care whatsoever anymore. And various states also clearly don't care 
anymore or they're doing very little as you guys are we're also touting this vaccine that we're not sure about the effectiveness the delivery of it also seems deeply problematic at least the first one that rolled out because of how it has to be kept extremely cool for long periods of time um, so we'll find out about those moving forward and i guess the other three things of interest very small that are happening around us is one uh, the university of maryland officially reshut down again as of friday they sent out an email closing everything it was mostly closed and most people were teaching online but they basically encouraged everyone to go home again go home you mean back home to wherever state or country they're yeah basically yeah? Oh, okay. um because the positivity rates in Maryland are, I think, about 6% again, which are obviously just going to keep rising. I do see more masks walking around the suburbs now. I mean, it used to be in my little suburban neighborhood that you didn't really have to mask up because you could just walk across the street and, you know, you were 30, 40 feet from people. But even now, especially people who are older are just always wearing masks as they walk the streets, which is less common. Yeah, but what about your kids? Are, are they still like, pointing at people who still are not wearing masks yeah they still do that they still uh especially my daughter call people out for not wearing masks it's also very strange because my daughter the other day was just very tired and went to bed you know 45 minutes earlier earlier than normal and we didn't know what to do and i thought she might be getting sick because she never gets tired and so i was kind of freaking out which kind of shows how this is reached into all of us in many ways, right? It, it felt very much like the first time she had gotten sick again, where you freak out and don't know what to do versus, you know, the 15th time when you're just like, here's some drugs and go to bed. But how, how would she get sick before you guys? It's obviously fairly illogical, but I'm just <laughs> saying it's right. It's like a very mentality thing. So that's kind of an interesting thought. Yeah. So where are you, Katie, and what's happening there? So I'm in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is about 40 minutes from Nashville, but we're definitely our own town uh, with a population well over 100,000. We are technically under a mask mandate for indoor spaces. However, unfortunately, the cultural climate here hasn't been one that has overwhelmingly supported the use of masks uh, better than in some areas like Wisconsin or uh, the Dakotas. But here there's definitely a divide between those who think that we should be wearing them like me and fortunately most of my you know colleagues and other people at the university uh, and then many of the general public. So even though you're supposed to wear a mask in public, we definitely see a lot of people who are not following those guidelines. Uh, I would say retail workers are afraid to approach people because they're afraid of violence or uh, you know any kind of retribution in a store I'm afraid of making a scene. Uh, and people are continuing to have parties and gatherings and go to church, which is not under the houses of worship are not under a mask mandate. So it's up to individual houses of worship to decide whether or not people even wear masks. Um, it, it's pretty crazy, but yet masks are required in school because the kids are in school with an option to distance learn. Uh, and they are required if you're teaching in person at the university for students and faculty. So at least in the kind of worlds that we have to participate in, things are better. How closely is mask wearing correlated with political leanings, let's say, to the best of your knowledge? Oh, is it very, very correlated with both political leaning and, of course, news consumption. And I live in a very conservative area other than, I would say, the university itself. When you say news consumption, do you mean which channel you watch or whether you watch the news at all? Um, actually, there have been studies that have demonstrated it's both which channel if you're consuming television news. If you're watching Fox News, you're a lot more likely, of course, to be Republican leaning and a lot less likely to be concerned about the virus versus if you're consuming cable news or established news outlets like New York Times and other news sources, then you are much more likely to believe that mask wearing is, is necessary and that we need to take COVID precautions. Out of curiosity, how many of your colleagues are actually teaching in person? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. We actually had five different levels that faculty could opt uh, everywhere from completely in person, which is not very many, completely in person to a hybrid model, which is what I do all the way through completely online. We had to choose in May. And so we were encouraged if we could be any in person at all, you know, masked up. Um, to do in person. So I chose to do the hybrid model. 
and we've had a lot of flexibility, so I could call it and move everything online, but we're actually just about done. We only have two weeks left, and then we have a two-month gap between anybody would be on campus again. And are all students attending in person? No. So the students can take those any classes in a combination of the five different levels. So many students are only online. Uh, and I would say this approach has actually worked pretty well, given the extensive kind of campaigns and signage to get students to follow the social distancing and mask rules uh, combined with faculty can enforce it. So we can call security if people don't wear masks. So let's say on campus is a much different experience than being in the greater community right now. It seems to be uh, various ways in which we've talked to people over the course of the last mm -hmm fall semester really I guess we could say and how different universities are approaching it so that's why we were mostly curious right and it's working for us and we have a lot of first generation college students and a lot of students that would have troubles accessing um, the internet or fast enough connections or technology I understand why at least back in May when they decided to this approach why they decided this approach uh, and they're continuing the same approach for spring as well as far as I know for now even though back in May, things seemed a bit different, right? I mean, it, they, they weren't as bad as they are now. Right. But our university, like I said, has done a great job with creating protocol and enforcements so that I do feel safe when I'm teaching because of how they've laid out the classroom structure. I teach in a ballroom right now, which is a little ridiculous, but it, it works for spacing people out combined with wearing masks. Um, I, I don't know. It's a, diff a difficult decision for everybody, I think. And have you had any outbreaks? Uh, not connected to class, uh, but I also only have us meet once a week. And for my large class, they can choose every week if they want to do an online discussion or come to class, which has really helped uh, keep students home if they're not feeling well or if they have been exposed. So nothing connected to class. Now in the public schools, they have not had outbreaks connected through transmission in school, but definitely have had students that have been out and in fact the whole fourth grade right now is distance learning because the teachers had to quarantine so i don't know like i said difficult time yeah definitely so maybe we can now transition to the interview part and start with uh, the basics i guess we could say so you argue that the media shapes the way we think about epidemics today in the past could you maybe just lay out for us how the media does that very briefly, and then we'll follow up with obviously more specifics. Sure, and I would start with actually saying that prior to this pandemic, one way that media outlets have shaped our perceptions of epidemics was actually by not covering a lot or preserving that history of epidemics, at least not in popular culture, so that before we entered into this time of crisis ourselves, most people actually didn't know about diseases of the past a whole lot and have kind of forgotten or moved away from what that would even be like. So I would say forgetting about diseases is, you know, a part of collective memory just as much as remembering. So your story really covers a large period of time, right? So from the 1720s till the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe trace for us the, the trends with the media? at least in, in the first part of the story and in the 18th century to start? Sure. So I picked significant moments, not just in epidemic history, but also in the history of the press, which is why I started in 1721 with really the first true democratic paper uh, for the colonists started by James Franklin because he was that angry ab about smallpox inoculation. But it's some trends that, that continue over over centuries that we're even seeing now would be kind of this function of the press or of media outlets to keep people informed, but not always telling the whole story, depending on which epidemic that we're thinking about, this need for, for regular people to express themselves. Now, back in the 18th century, it was more difficult to do so, especially in those early papers, but we, we still see through, for example, ads from regular citizens, uh, this need to say, hey, I'm not sick. People have, over time, used media outlets to uh, for personal ads to say, contrary to rumors, this household has not been infected. Um, and, and I would say also just the kind of the outlet as a way to express ideas and speculations about the disease itself. Wait, so just to pick up on something. So you say that person, an individual or a household would just 
put an ad in a paper, in a community paper, and, and say, oh, we're not, I, we are not sick. Yes. And even with the limited space of the, the Boston Gazette in 1721, people did that and continue to do that even with social media now. Of course, although I, I'm, social media is kind of free at least, I would say, but that would probably cost money, right? So it would. So it'd be a, a privileged household that could be able to do that. And, and that's one of the biggest shifts we've seen is this access to media, all right, access to outlets, particularly to create and publish your own content. And just out of curiosity, do you know of any cases in which someone says, oh, we're not sick, and someone else kind of accuses them of actually being sick, of saying that they're lying or something? Um, no, but I know a case in which it was the opposite. Um, so when Alexander Hamilton and Eliza became sick with yellow fever in 1793, there were several news stories on how they were sick. Now, Thomas Jefferson didn't use the paper to question that, but he actually personally questioned that, uh, which was identified in the secondary source, not in my research. So kind of the flip side, no, you're not sick. Oh, wait, you are sick. Okay. Sounds like the entire White House administrative staff, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so that's newspapers. How, you know, I'm thinking eventually, say, Telegraph and radio and eventually TV will come into play. How do these changes in media technology change how the media is portraying epidemics and stories? If it does, or if it doesn't, what kind of story does it become? No, it becomes visual. And I'd say that's the biggest shift uh, in the pre-digital era, if we want to look at how disease is covered. And I would say the ability to portray epidemics visually, I mean, first of all, we see it in the ads. Right, ads for all of these different patent medicines in the 1800s before advertising was regulated, uh, when you can still mix up an elixir in your basement and then market it through magazines and newspapers, uh, using different images to suggest that these tonics would be curative. Uh, and, and then I would say later on, this ability to document epidemics, um, you know, we really see through the imagery of influenza. The influenza pandemic, of course, of 1918, which people like to refer to as the Spanish flu, images of rows of beds being occupied, for example, or uh, graves being dug. Uh, well, we haven't had that many epidemics and pandemics, I would say, in an era in which we have that ability to film what's going on until now, at least not at a mass scale. So to stay a bit longer on the visual representation of disease and epidemics, so could you maybe identify a few trends in how people used to do this? Let's say in the late 19th century and the bacteriological revolution, since then, do images of bacteria or microscopes or microscopic images of disease, do, do those appear at all? Not so much in my research. It was more the, the kind of the faces of experience. But we also have to remember that certain epidemics or certain diseases represent well. And, and represent effectively a lot more than others. So I want to think particularly of the visual imagery associated with polio's impact and how that was so crucial to the amount of fundraising that the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, or as we would know it, the March of Dimes, could raise money versus a disease like tuberculosis, uh, which has been highly stigmatized and also hard to depict. It's hard to depict respiratory infections unless it paralyzes the diaphragm and leads to rows of iron lungs, for example. So one question I always have when it comes to media, and this has to do with not my disease work, Lee, but mm -hmm. my other work, which is, has to do a lot with uh, actually sermons. And people have thought about sermons as a form of mass media, mm -hmm. say the, the late antique world. One question that always comes up is one of audience, right? So who's listening? How do we know who's listening? And how do we know that they're actually absorbing the stuff that's being done. Mm -hmm. So how do you suss out in your work how this media is actually being picked up by, you know, quote unquote, everyday people? Mm -hmm. So I think it depends on our moment. From the very limited media resources in the 18th century in which you didn't have very many newspapers, for example, that cut publishing, but you also had all these pamphlets and pamphlets that responding to the newspaper coverage that suggest that people were reading this. Uh, I would also say in public reaction and action. So the effectiveness of the Federal Gazette in 1793 to get people to stay home because they believe that 
a yellow fever possibly could be contagious, even though it actually wasn't because it was, you know, spread through mosquitoes. Uh, so public reaction, uh, establishing a, a public climate that is conducive to taking public health actions. Um, we can see that with influenza in 1918, um, convincing the town of Lawrence, Kansas to quarantine, con convincing students to stay on campus and being willing to wear masks, which actually happened a lot later in that pandemic than most people think about. And, and so these different moments, but of course it can work on the flip side where people like right now with COVID aren't responding in a way that suggests that they're listening to the public health experts. Instead, they're spreading their own media messages and, and disinformation. Just out of curiosity, how do you select your sources? So the different newspapers in this case that you use, I mean, do you select them based on their circulation, their relevance for a community, their prestige level, so to speak? I chose to focus on each disease as situated within a particular geographic location because I wanted to tell a story of different towns and how towns experience it on a local level and then kind of generating out. Uh, and so within that town, I chose every source that I could access. Uh, and you know, every newspaper, local newspaper, I even got the yearbook for the University of Kansas from 1919. I looked at alumni magazines at, uh, for, because I focused on the university for that one. So for most of the epidemics, it was since it was locally bound, it was every, every source I could get. Now polio, I, I studied a little bit differently as did diphtheria because I wanted more of a national look at that. And what I did was uh, strategic and systematic searches on major newspaper databases uh, within a particular time frame. So I didn't limit myself for, for this study across time. I didn't limit myself other than limiting it to the geography and the time frame. So trying to get everything I possibly could. I don't have a lot of um, scholarship regarding the television coverage for the 1952 polio epidemic but I don't think there was a lot. So I tried as much as I could through different archives to access it. But I mean, it was a relatively new or very new medium. And so a lot of people probably didn't use that at that time. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of archival work. Mm -hmm. It was, it was amazing. So, you know, thinking about one of your stories, which is yellow fever in Philadelphia, which is the capital in the 17, early 1790s, how can you differentiate between the impact of the media, or maybe you can't, and say the impact of the national government that's sitting there and doing things or promoting ideas? Or maybe the 1790 case, less academic research, but in some of the other cases, there's certainly academic research that's ongoing. So how do you suss out the different influences of them from each other, or can they not be done? And that's kind of like a false thing we've set up as uh, academics that we have to like differentiate one from another. I see what you're saying. Uh, for 1793, you can't really look at the impact of the national government on that epidemic because the national government didn't do a whole lot. It was handled at the local level, which also happened to be the capital. But um, the leaders at that time, like, for example, President Washington, didn't directly do anything with the epidemic. Washington left town. So, I mean, that was handled that most of these epidemics have been handled at a local level in which mayors are making the decisions or chancellors at a university are making the decisions. It's very different than where we are now in which you have to have a much lengthier, much more coordinated national effort to really make an impact, which is a big reason why we, which we haven't done is why we're seeing the effects now. When and why do you think that transition happens from a local to a national movement story impact? Well, I think we can look for, uh, I would say, technological determinism would be part of that meaning. You have to reach a point in which media travels at such a, you know, we have the technology to make media accessible quickly and continuously. And that technological change has also enabled people to learn about outbreaks before they hit your own town. So you're going to get a much greater response from local media messages telling you to quarantine if everyone around you is sick and they already converted the big mansion down on Main Street into a hospital. That's, that's much different than learning about something months in advance. Some of that happened during the Spanish flu, but it wasn't presented as an imminent threat, particularly because that World War I discourse was dominant across different news outlets. 
Uh, so, we, but we do see that shift with polio in 1952, but you had the coordinated efforts of the March of Dimes, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, to run that as the nonprofit across the United States at both a national and a community level. So to bring things back to Merle's earlier question about figuring out the different influences of different institutions, let's say, or individuals. So if we're looking at a local level mm -hmm. and, and the mayor is really active in promulgating decrees or laws, informing the residents, citizens of his town, so how can you tell whether the influences you're seeing on people's behavior or experience are based on the mayor's actions, for example, or the media that, that you've been looking at? Uh, if they're telling the same story, you really can't, uh, especially if they're supporting each other. And ideally that's what happens is that media messages reinforce and perpetuate the local leadership and, and what needs to happen. But it does actually, differ, for example, in Philadelphia, just because I'd say the people of Philadelphia didn't get the whole story of what, of just how dire everything was from the local newspaper, but they were experiencing it. So they knew that people were dying at these mass levels, even if it wasn't always listed or ever listed in the Federal Gazette, because you could see the mass graves as you walked around town, or you could see town square abandoned and there's no food. I mean, I think that things change a lot when we shift them from a local to a national level. And also when we drag out that time frame from a month to eight months. Nowadays, there's so much more citizen produced content that you know, before we had a digital era, if you didn't agree with what was going on, you might've, it might've impacted your daily kind of routine, but you didn't really have a space or a platform to really protest at least not for the most part, a little bit of mask resistance in San Francisco in 1918 in December, but it wasn't at a mass scale. You wouldn't question it because you didn't have a place to do so other than like your own little bubble that you lived in. So I want to shift slightly to, I guess, the other question your book looks at, which is this idea of memory and forgetting pandemics. So there's probably no single answer to this question. So maybe pick a, an example or two, but how long does it take for a disease to fade from general discourse? And then maybe afterwards we can talk about why that happens. So it depends on the disease, definitely depends on the story that is told and how much recognition it got in the moment. But I would say that uh, having some kind of human interest or feature element to it makes the story last a lot longer. For example, a lot of people know Balto, the sled dog that was a hero. They might not know the story of the diphtheria epidemic in Nome, Alaska in 1925, but they know Balto. Most people are familiar with the infamous Typhoid Mary but they don't know the whole story. And I would say that, that that incomplete story or that distortion is what we see most of the time in collective memory. And then of course, there are many, many other stories that have just faded, uh, like the fact that many, many people with tuberculosis moved out West and that a lot of Colorado, of the Colorado towns and cities were founded by people with tuberculosis. Yeah, I'll just add on a personal note, I had a kid's book about Balto um, oh, yeah, we have I, a whole bunch of those. Yeah, I don't think I knew the disease. I just knew that mm -hmm. this was like the heroic dog that saved no Alaska. Yes, but Togo's the hero. Togo gets no credit, except they just came out with that movie called Togo. But yeah, Balto gets all the credit because I mean, it was a human interest story and it got national attention, even though not that many people got, that, got sick or not that many people died. But it was just so heartwarming to save the people of Alaska. Yeah, and there's a statue of Balto in Central Park, mm -hmm. not far from where I grew up. And oh. so after I read this book, my parents would take me every once in a while to go look at Balto, the statue. Statue, so. yes. So we like to remember things that are heartwarming. We like to remember things that are pleasant and fill people with joy and optimism. And that's one of those stories. Many of the other stories in my book have been forgotten, uh, at least by most people. For example, the smallpox epidemic in Boston. In 1721. Most people don't know about that. So why is Typhoid Mary remembered for so long and, and so strongly? Um, primarily thanks to a newspaper article that depicted her as you know, breathing skulls into her 
or skillet, uh, thus poisoning everyone around her. And, and that was giving her the name Typhoid Mary. I mean, she was preserved in popular culture while she was still alive. Within a couple of years of her trial, they were already coming up with narratives, like fictional narratives in, in these stories in which a similar case to Typhoid Mary was featured. So I think that just because she was villainized and also kind of a victim of her moment that they wanted someone to blame and she was a good representative of how people were feeling, especially with anti-immigrant sentiment and, and a lot of other things going on in that time. And if we're still thinking about collective memory, so how would you explain the, the forgetting of the influenza pandemic, which occurred, I mean, during, I guess, the middle of the century? Mm -hmm. One uh, issue with that, of course, was that it was also the same time as World War One, And so in celebrating the end of World War One, people wanted to move past influenza and pretend it didn't happen. I, mean, I even saw that in the yearbook from the University of Kansas, uh, which laid out soldiers who had died in battle, but had said nothing about influenza, even on their own campus. In fact, there's almost no mentioning of it. So I think it's hard for competing discourses in a historical moment kind of emerge in a parallel form of, of remembering. But also, I mean, it was a dark time and there wasn't a moment of joy. No vaccine came out of it. Uh, it didn't end overnight. It had multiple waves that went on even past what people tend to consider as that moment. And uh, there's also that what I've noticed in, in the archives for kind of these fallen soldiers who died of influenza, kind of this feeling like they never got to serve what they, you know, in, in their patriotic duty and how that was sad as well. Like kind of this died too young or died before their, their moment of glory. So I think a lot of reasons why we forget about that pandemic until right now in which now everybody wants to learn about it, even though it's not even covered in a lot of history books. We also don't think a lot about World War I. I would say most films focus on World War II, not World War I anyway. Yeah, I, I agree with both those points. But I mean, so would you say that the influenza pandemic was not remembered at all, let's say during the 20s and 30s? I bet people talked about it. I bet they talked about it in in a way that respected disease. And that's something that we have lost, at least before the COVID pandemic, was a fear of disease. Because people were still afraid of other diseases at that time, too. So yes, eventually the influenza pandemic waned, but then we also had more influenza and pneumonia and then also measles and a number of other now vaccine-preventable diseases. This healthy respect for disease is one of the, I would say, most profound things that's been lost in collective memory, at least until this pandemic. Yeah, and that seems like that might change, at least in, in the near future. And how does framing a disease event as an event, as a pandemic or an epidemic, or just giving it a bigger name, how does that feature? I mean, I'm sure that makes things more memorable, right? I think so. Uh, it's easier to do so if there's kind of a definitive start and end, uh, which is difficult for an epidemic, uh, unless you have something like the miracle anti-serum that rescued the people of Nome. And another reason why that story continues to be told. Or um, with polio, you know, that moment in which they declared first that Sox vaccine was effective and that the trial was successful, but then later on, of course, that polio had been eradicated in the United States, or the smallpox victory of when it was globally eradicated. When you have moments of triumph, they tend to cement infectious disease in history in a way that we don't have with uh, diseases that kind of just went away for a little while and likely will come back. But it is, I mean, in some ways it's problematic, to get back to your question, it's problematic to say event if it's not a definitive start and end. Though I would say that many media messages would like us to believe that there's a start and an end and will be soon, of course, for COVID-19. So you mentioned triumph or triumphal narratives or winning narratives, right? Mm -hmm. And are there losing narratives? Do we tell stories about us losing to diseases? Uh, not usually, at least not in, I would say, mainstream media events, or we wait long enough to, to which we have a triumph. So if you wait, I mean, like tuberculosis, there's no moment of victory, at least in the my chapter on tuberculosis, because you have to wait until the 1950s before you get effective treatments. 
right? It just kind of started to dwindle because of improvements in public health, which really isn't a victory, even though they, they called it the war on tuberculosis. So you could say the war won, but did they really win? I mean, in a sense, you can just create false straw diseases of hmm. the past, right? You can say, look, these people 30 years before us were even worse. We're doing better, even if it's minimal or incremental until you can eventually prove that somehow you're better. Right? And kind of false hopes. I mean, they had a vaccine during the Spanish flu. I don't know what they were injecting people with because they didn't even know influenza was a virus. So, but they made promises about the vaccine and, and this narrative of the scientific role in science will save us is something that at least um, kind of germ theory and beyond reemerges. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen this with, there's a number of plague and cholera vaccines that come up at the turn of the 20th century that are a very dubious use, let's say. And there's obviously deeply racist colonial ways in which who they're injecting, when they're injecting, and all these types of things um, that a number of our guests have previously pointed out to us. Okay, so, so I actually have a follow-up question here. Mm-hmm. So this question is about Ebola, which is, of course, later than the time frame of your book. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, remember, only eight or so people had Ebola in the United States, and only two of them or so died. Both of the people who died actually brought Ebola from abroad, so it's not as if they got infected on American, in, in America. So my question is, how did Ebola become so scary? And still is, of course. Uh, so I would trace the fear of Ebola back to some of our fictional narratives that, that first gave us a glimpse of what Ebola might be. And, and part of this is also going to go back to our need in society to distance ourselves from what is scary in a way that it doesn't feel like a threat. Um, and so one of the ways that we've seen with disease narratives is either to talk about them as in the past. In the past, you wouldn't want to get polio because you could wind up in an iron lung or in a way that we do an ethnic othering, right? In which we say, this isn't gonna to happen to us because it's over there, it's, it's not right. And as we know, that that's highly stigmatizing uh, and problematic in that way, but we did see that with Ebola. So, oh, we don't have to be worried about disease here, but there's a disease in Africa that makes you bleed from your eyes and, and your mouth and other places, and they don't have a vaccine for it and, and the mortality rate is high. So. This is a story that's been told over and over again and reinforced by popular cultural depictions like the movie Outbreak in 1995. Also in some television shows in which you have the threat of Ebola, but it doesn't reach that point and reinforced by visual depictions of people bleeding from the eyes. Anything that is visually terrifying is going to reinforce this fascination and also, I would say, the, the public interest in what we're talking about. And again, that othering is, is going to be part of that story. It could come here. Why should we care? It could come here, which again is troublesome in that we should care about disease anywhere for how it affects humanity. So I'm actually teaching uh, the movie Outbreak this week and I rewatched it before mm -hmm. class and the visual representations of fictional Ebola-like disease, I mean, it's called Motaba there, but it's, it's really Ebola. Mm -hmm. are, are really shocking and they're, they're trying to shock. I mean, trying to show people bleeding from, I mean, lots of people bleeding from lots of different places. Mm -hmm. And how viruses mutate and suddenly can become airborne and how they could be difficult to contain, right? Uh, and they don't give you a great explanation in the film, which, which holds onto its audience as to why Ebola can be contained or how it can be contained as we actually experienced in real life, right? We had 10 years later or more than that after that film came out. I mean, there's lots of sci-fi shows that do that too, in which they make up a disease, but it's similar to a disease that could exist, uh, often giving us a lot of distorted facts about it. Like I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the X-Files episode about smallpox carried by killer bees, which didn't make any sense if you know anything about smallpox, but you say smallpox just like typhoid berry or just like Ebola and it you know brings people in and scares them at the same time. So, so to connect this to the previous discussion we've had, one of the things I've been struggling with is trying to evaluate, let's say, or estimate 
how influential are these fictional narratives, right? So how influential is the movie Outbreak, for example, for our conception of what Ebola is? And just to take this as, as an example, and I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question, but maybe you have better ideas. Um, uh, depends on how many people watched it. So when it first came out, yes, it was popular, but it wasn't nearly as popular as it's been since January 2020. The less experience that people have with a particular phenomenon, especially one that's either terrifying and or fascinating, the more likely they are to attach to media representations as uh, educational tools, even if experts on the topic know that they're fictional depictions. So you would go with the amount of people who watch, read, or consume a type of media as mm -hmm. like the yeah. best measure of saying how influential something is? I would look at viewership. I would also look at uh, more specific studies that look at effects, but we could also draw from theories that have demonstrated effects on other topics as well. I would also look at response. So for example, um, the number of people that went online and searched for a particular thing after there was a news story on it. I mean, that can show us patterns or tweeted about it or, you know, other ways to measure response other than just viewership. And, and with COVID-19, I'm thinking of all the real world examples tied to misinformation posted on social media. I just want to point out, and I think I've done this several times on this podcast, that the idea of watching Outbreak or more pertinently Contagion during the midst of this pandemic always struck me as particularly unappealing, let's say. But I guess this is something people wanted to do. I personally just wanted to watch nonsensical, you know, James Bond movies or something like that. No, I have a theory about this. People wanted to watch Contagion and Outbreak because they wanted the resolution. They wanted to see how does this play out beyond whatever stage we were at when people were consuming these films, right? They want to get to the part where, aha, there's a vaccine and we can distribute it. And even though that takes time and contagion, you still get to see that resolution. I don't understand why people have been obsessed with, with the zombie virus narratives in which there's no resolution and science doesn't save the day. Well, I'll just push back on that very briefly and say contagion, there might be a resolution with a vaccine, but it's clearly not a happy resolution with the vaccine, right? I mean, there's the whole story in which they give placebo vaccines to a whole village in China who's probably going to get the disease and die to an extent. So I don't think of that as a happy thing. And I would say the zombies is quite nice because if the zombies are the disease, at least you just shoot them in the head. And we all know how to kill zombies at this point. It's pretty straightforward. But we're not supposed to, as 2011 Contagion fans, you were not supposed to be like, oh, what about these people who got the placebo? Unfortunately, the way that the narrative is structured, they're supposed to be like the bad guys because they kidnapped the World Health Organization expert that went there to help them. You're supposed to focus on Matt Damon's family, which yes. stigmatizes. I mean, it's, it's again, it's problematic, but that's how they, they assumed you would identify. The characters you identify with are the girl who wants to go to prom and has it in her living room, not, oh, what about that village in China? What? Yes, except that Matt Damon's wife was also cheating on him, so, you know, had to die. Yeah, that's why she had to die. That's why Beth Emhoff <laughs> dies in the first 10 minutes of the film. And instead, he gets to he gets to live on with his daughter Jory, right? As if nothing else has happened. Yeah, no, no, no this is fair. This is probably you know for another movie podcast we've done one, so maybe we should do another at some point. My gosh, well. so, that's so. I mean, cool. There's so much you could talk about. Walking Dead. Why is anybody watching? Yeah, you could do that too. <laughs> well, that I have a bigger problem with because there's been you know 95 seasons at this point, so I'm just tired from watching it. Oh, and it's boring. Plus, uh, it doesn't make sense in, in, in terms of its disease transmission, because if you can only transmit disease through saliva, everybody would have had rabies and died. So I'll stop on that. I have a whole lecture on that, but I won't go. There. Well, have you pointed out the fact we had a, a virologist on the podcast a few months ago who pointed out to us something on contagion that I never noticed, which is the first woman who develops the vaccine gives it to herself in the leg as an injection, but then it's rolled out as an inhaler, yes. which of course makes no sense whatsoever that yes there's that too and that she injects herself so, so to wrap up the the movie discussion but it, it actually might tie into this question so who would be the agents within the media that 
let's say, manipulate public perception of infectious diseases? And maybe why would they do it? And how can we know who and why is doing that? Uh, it depends on the time period, but the unique moment that we're in right now, it seems to be primarily the Trump administration uh, in disseminating, widely disseminating misinformation that has confused the public from the true public health authorities' attempts to educate the public. And I would say that uh, we can't put all the, the blame just on the media platforms. It's how they're being used, right? But if, if we stay with the media, mm-hmm. I mean, the media wants to sell stories, if I understand correctly, right? That's a main part of of their business model, really. Well, we can't say the media is actually problematic in itself, just because media, the media landscape is so fragmented and so abundant and refers to local, national, international sources, as well as citizen-produced journalism. So I would say media industries, commercial media industries, do want to attract an audience. The question nowadays is what audience are they going for? Because you're not going to get that homogenous, uh, actually I would say you would get more of a homogenous audience because people have so many choices. The problem nowadays is getting people to tune into your message versus uh, if we're in 1793, everybody's going to read your newspaper that can read because there's one newspaper. So I would say as far as like kind of sensationalizing the stories, Yes, we see that to differing degrees, depending on what outlets we're looking for. I think the trouble with that at this point is that people have pandemic fatigue. So how do you continue to grab people about a topic that they're living in, they're tired of, they want to move past, they want to have the triumph. So aside from vaccine stories, where do you go with that? So I would say less manipulation in the same way that we could have had in the past, more kind of pandering to an audience, perhaps, depending on the source we're looking for or looking at. Yeah, so maybe to wrap things up, I can ask you kind of a meta question. I know Lee loves his meta questions. Hmm. What was it like for you to start the book before COVID and finish it during? Mm -hmm. And then maybe if there were any changes to your thought or your thinking along the way during this process. All right, so it has been quite the roller coaster for me since I began thinking about the book, I would say 2016. Uh, I started doing the research primarily in 2018 and wrote most of the book in 2018 and 2019. It was much, much more enjoyable to research epidemic history than it is to experience living in a pandemic. And that's what I, I really noticed the shift is that loss of really getting at different experiences because as I wrote about it in my book, who gets to tell the story uh, is going to be limited often to a privileged group of people that have literacy and access to media content production. And that's a shift that we're seeing now. But uh, it has been really crazy to be part of this in this way. And, And I will say that as a public health and media scholar, but also as a human being, I, I've felt a contradiction over how do we even live our lives now? Because on one hand, I know what is the safest approach, but I'm also a parent and I'm also a person. And I also have you know, a desire to be social and to connect with other people. So it, it's really kind of, I, I would say highlighted for me, the contradictions that people must have experienced in the past that maybe we don't always get at through the media messages produced then. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it, because I know Lee and I obviously started working on pandemics and diseases before this started, and we've also had some stuff that we've finished, as it were, before, and then similar to you, right, had to adjust and make changes as we went along. So that's been a fascinating process, I think Lee will agree, during this. So it's maybe nice is not the right word, but it's good to talk to someone else who's been going through something very similar to what right, we where you have to adjust what you've said because you can't say it in a hypothetical there's too much real world experience to draw from which is really unfortunate but this story needs to be told and we can't stop just because we haven't found the end of the light at the end of the tunnel yet or that moment of triumph we need to tell the experiences that people are having right now so i think on that note i just wanted to Thank you again for speaking with us today, Katie. It's been really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. 
So I thought that was an interesting way to bring in the media into some of the discussions we've been having in, in previous episodes on this podcast. And I think maybe a good place to begin our reflection session would be to think about Katie's work at the very local level. And this is something we've been discussing in the past. So what Katie was doing in her book and in the interview was really look at the local experiences of disease, of epidemic or in pandemic, and how, how these things are handled at the city, town, community level. And that really backs up what we've been discussing with other guests as well. On one hand, and on the other hand, if we trace Katie's narrative, we see how things move from this local level to a more national story. Yeah, I think that's very much the way to think about it. And as you said, what others have said, and that there's at the one hand, there's a global experience, there's also a national experience, and there's also a local experience, and then an individual one that we're all going through. And how those each get framed is different, and how we analyze them is different. And obviously how we experience them is different. And so how you decide eventually to write about a pandemic or disease is inevitably bound up in which one of those choices you make from the beginning, I think. Yes, and I think there has been, at least based on my very subjective experience, there has been pressure towards the, the higher levels and this hierarchy, right? So more global stories and more national stories and much less local stories. I mean, if we take my country, Israel, for example, I think the only story that's really being told is the national story, is, is what's happening throughout the country. And maybe some global as well, but definitely not like a local or community-based story. Is no one doing oral interviews or oral archives? I mean, that's a big thing that I know is happening in the United States actually quite frequently. I do not know of anyone who's been doing that at all. There has been some scapegoating of communities and of sectors within the population here, minorities of, of different shapes and forms. But that's the only phenomenon I can think of that has anything to do with the lower than national level or like, yeah. That might have to do with Israel itself and might be worth you or someone else exploring, because I know that's a big thing in the United States, both how, you know, as Katie pointed out in the beginning, how, say, Murfreesboro, Tennessee is reacting to this pandemic versus Annapolis is reacting to this pandemic is a huge thing that everyone points out all the time. And I know that there are a number of oral histories that are ongoing to explore these questions with different groups, whether they be based on race, ethnicity, locality, socioeconomic status, religion, whatever it might be. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I don't have a good answer as to why, why that's the case. I, I can hypothesize that maybe because it's a smaller country and it, the experience is portrayed as more or less homogenous. I don't think it is, but I think that's the way it's portrayed as in everyone is kind of like together and experiencing the same thing. I mean, it very obviously is not the case, but that maybe dissuades people from actually looking into the, the more personalized stories. And I think the media also, I mean, at least the media I've been consuming doesn't have anything personalized at all. I mean, it's, it's all like big stories. And at this point, it's really numbers. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, you know, the other thing you mentioned actually at the beginning to an extent that I thought she nicely laid out was how diseases compete with other events, right? And how we kind of lose track of them, we might say, as other events take them over or they come back out as other events fade. So the obvious one here, Lee, is obviously in the United States is the election, right? So for the week or so where the election was a big deal, you know, it was being called and the process of being called, everyone kind of didn't forget about COVID, but it was obviously pushed to the side. And now that the elections settled, obviously everyone's looking at the numbers and kind of losing their minds again for obvious reasons, but it's not as if last week during all the election stuff, it wasn't also increasing significantly. Yeah, I think Katie had a good point on this. She, she mentioned the, the 
pandemic fatigue, right? And I think this is what we're talking about. So if, if you compare this to Ebola, right, to take the example that we had, that we've discussed with her, Ebola had very little effect, but drew a lot of attention. And I think COVID has been drawing attention for, what, almost a year at this point. And, and people, I guess, everyone's kind of tired of, of dealing with it. This is something I feel here as well. So when there are other big stories, you kind of forget a bit about COVID or decentralized COVID. These other events kind of take prominence for a certain amount of time. And because COVID hasn't really gone away since it started, it's always like a story you can get back to, especially now in the United States, right? When I think I, I read that this past week, this past week was the first time in which the number of infections passed 100,000 and it has passed 100,000 in each of the days this week. And now you guys are like at 180 or so. Yeah, it must have been a the seven day rolling average was above 100,000. That's probably what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, what this kind of shows and points out as well as she was noting was the narrative and the story making process, which we've talked about as well. This ties in neatly with Charles Rosenberg's famous article referring to AIDS about how pandemics play out, that there, you know, builds up in this tension and eventually there's a resolution of it. But I think what people have pointed out, and certainly I've seen during a number of talks during COVID, for example, is that this covers up the differing human individual experiences of what's happening. I think that's what we've just pointed out or Katie pointed out as well the different ways in which people experience things, the different scales at which these things happen is just as important as the final story we will ultimately tell someday. Yeah, and I think the stories we tell ourselves, for example, through the media, play an enormous role really in, in shaping the experiences of everyone who's, who's really living through these times, right? Again, if the comparison between Ebola and, and COVID, I think, is to me at least, is striking that COVID is so destructive yet. I mean, it's almost as if we kind of forget about it at times. At least that's my experience. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And the question is, will you personally remember or forget some of what you've gone through in 10 or 15 or 20 years? You know, that's a good point. And I think this podcast is actually pretty helpful about this, right? I mean, the like short, brief, reports of what's going on and in your life and my life. I mean, it's, it's, I haven't listened to any of the previous episodes of the old episodes recently, but, but I'm sure it might be interesting. You know, maybe we should do this maybe like on the year, like our 52nd episode or whenever we, we finish like a year of this podcast, we can just like reflect on the reflections and see, see how things changed. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine by then, but maybe not. Well, I just like to point out, Lee, you're really into the meta commentaries these days. I'm so proud of my influence on you. Yeah, I've, I've gotten infected with, with meta level thinking. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to, to the last segment of this episode. So I thought, Merle, we might want to talk about TV shows and movies that you might be expecting or looking forward to watching. So is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to, Merle? Yeah, I've been enjoying, as you probably know, Lee, the most recent season of The Bachelorette. And so that's been quite nice. And I'm looking forward to the new season of The Bachelor, which starts in January. So what's the point in each new season? Is it just like a new Bachelor? Yeah, and new groups of people come on and new people are trying to find the love of their life on TV. Do you believe that? Do you think I'm an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> so why are you watching that? And why are you expecting that? Because it's been built up to an extent, because there was an extended hiatus on shooting, obviously because of COVID. So the expectation of the new season has built up. And so that's been interesting to follow along. And as for why I enjoy it, it's because it's utterly mindless. There's very few things, as you probably know, I like to analyze things very often, let's put it that way. But this is so 
innocuous that even when I analyze it, it's perfectly fine. So I remember vaguely that you told me that you were watching The Mandalorian as well. And and there you told me once that you barely notice what's going on. You just like <laughs> sit in front of that and like, I am not even sure that watching it is, yeah, you weren't able to tell me almost anything about the plot. Yeah, because there is no plot or character <laughs> development. I I watched the uh, the first episode of the new season last night. And God, does that not have a plot? <laughs> it's very funny. I'll two little brief points here. The father of the the other child who we are in our pod with, he's obsessed with the Mandalorian and loves it. So I now tell him that it's, you know, kind of the dumbest thing I've ever seen. He gets not upset, but it's kind of like a little thing we have. But then my daughter, the other night we were having, we stayed there after their school for her pizza dinner. And my daughter took a shower there and she wanted to put on pajamas. So the pajamas they gave her were Yoda pajamas and she really liked them. She actually wore them all weekend or didn't want to take them off. So. Okay. So it's two questions here. I, I must understand. Question number one, is baby Yoda now, I don't know, kid Yoda or like adolescent Yoda or is he still baby Yoda? He's still baby Yoda and he's known as the child, I'm told. <laughs> I like how you're being told that as if you're not watching that. But we'll put that aside. So, so that's one thing. The other question is, how would you rank this compared to The Bachelor? This is much, much worse than The Bachelor. Seriously? Infinitely worse, yes. The Bachelor doesn't pretend to be anything The Bachelor is not. Oh, so. okay. So my willingness to watch The Mandalorian has currently dropped to like zero. So thanks for saving me time at least, I guess. No problem, Lee. So what are you looking forward to watching? So actually two sci-fi. I mean, if, if we're talking about sci-fi, so actually two things that two sci-fi and one TV show, one movie that I'm actually looking forward to. So the movie is Dune. So Dune is supposed to have a new version coming out next year. It was supposed to come out this year. Have you seen the made-for-TV version too? That's not real. <laughs> That's not real. The only legitimate Dune is the 1984 version, which people hate. But I kind of like. I think it was pretty good. You mean the one with Sting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one with Sting. Yeah. I just want to point out that every time you talk about movies, my respect for you drops because you <laughs> like the worst movies ever. No, that that was like a very artistic take on Dune. I think I haven't watched it. To be honest, I haven't watched it in like a decade or so. It was good. I remember it pretty fondly. It, it had Patrick Stewart, who, who I liked as like Captain Picard from the Enterprise, like Star Trek. So this is supposed to be good. I mean, they have a good trailer out. So I'm looking forward for that. And for the series, there's supposed to be a series on the foundation, the, the Isaac Asimov book series from the 50s, actually. Who's but doing also, that? I think it's Apple TV. Oh, so now I have to get some other streaming service so I can watch that <laughs> and then be angry that it probably won't even be any good. Wait, have you read the series? Probably 10 times. Oh, okay. That, that's new. Have I, you? I, I didn't know this. Yeah, of course. You do know it's just Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, right? <laughs> well, I haven't read this also in a while, but one of the things I do remember reading this, even as a kid, when I, for the first time I read this, and this was me as a teenager, is like the, the idea of psychohistory, right? The idea that you can use some kind of combination of psychology and history to predict the future. And they have all these like weird calculations. There's like genius figure in the like very ancient past who was able to calculate the future, his future, which is the, the series is present uh, for like what hundreds, thousands of years, I think at some point. Yeah. You should read this again. Now that you're a late antique historian, my favorite, figure that you know i figured out pretty easily was there's a general who works for an emperor who's trying to reconquer the empire <laughs> whose name if i'm getting it correctly is bella rios 
<laughs> I did not remember that. I did not remember that. So that's, that's good to know. Yeah, Asimov was like hugely productive. I mean, which I didn't know as a kid, but I looked him up like some a while ago and I discovered he wrote like tons of books. So yeah, we will we'll look forward to that. And I guess that on, on this note of anticipating future, hopefully good things, I'm not sure they'll actually be good, but at least there's something to hope. We can probably wrap up this episode. We'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast and our previous guest, Elliot Bowen, for suggesting Katie as the guest of this episode. And of course, thanks to Cameron Chertavian, our sound editor, and Verdric Kanati, our webmaster. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and don't listen to Lee for any movie recommendations.